Good morning. There we go. You're going to talk to Ben, but you're not going to talk to me? What in the world? It's not very nice. A little late coming out there because Ben and I were joking around. There's a uh, music stand behind the stage that literally is about this wide. And I was this close to bringing it out and pulling it up about this far and starting. But I decided I'd rather not do that. So, uh, so it was just probably not the better to start out with. Glad to be with you this morning. Um, as, uh, as we've already talked about, we're taking a break from Matthew for a week. Uh, and there's a danger in that. I, I prefer to, to, to um, when I'm preaching, to be able to preach in a series. Uh, because when you do a standalone sermon, there's a, there's a danger. Uh, it's real easy to pull out a soapbox or something that you just, is like your subject, the thing you want to talk about. Uh, when you preach through books of the Bible or you preach series, you know, a lot of times you're, you don't deal with just the things you want to talk about. You deal with what's there in the text, what God has laid out before you by the power of the Spirit. And so it, it kind of guards you a little bit from just picking your own little personal pet peeves or, or topics. Uh, so this week, as um, uh, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, if you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 2. But uh, Fudd and I were, were talking um, about this Sunday and praying through what it what we might what it might want to look at what we want to talk about and I had a few things to to bring to him and we discussed and we thought this might be a uh, a good place for us so this and it just happens to be one of those things that really kind of feels in my wheelhouse something that God's been pressing on my heart for really the past probably about the past year um some things that God has just really been um shaping in in my life and helping me understand uh, to the point of understanding it because I needed it uh, desperately. I had some wrong thinking about some things um, and, and just didn't understand some other things. And by God's grace, I really feel he's kind of, he kind of brought me uh, to a place of, of beginning to understand that and start kind of living it out. And so I pray that this morning the same would be true for you. So I want to, uh, I want to I pray and then we will... We will jump in to Colossians 2 in just a second. So let's pray. Father, thank you for another day, uh, for grace, for mercy, for love. You are amazing. And uh, our language fails us to describe your wonder and your beauty. And so, Father, we will spend eternity declaring how great you are and never, ever exhausted because you are wonderful. So, Father, I pray this morning as we open your your word that we would not simply go through an exercise of minutes of, of looking, reading, talking, and then walk away. But, God, I pray that you would continue to uh, shape my heart and to think the way you think and understand your truth. And I pray that together we as a family might press on uh, to the glory of God in all that we do. Lord, we love you and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, there's really been in the past year or two what some people have called a, a gospel resurgence. And what I mean by that, it's not as though we have forgotten the gospel or people haven't been talking about the gospel, but it has been um, a, a huge topic of conversation in evangelical circles um, and something that's just become very prominent. And one of the ways you know that, uh, well, you know what's the, the kind of the topic that's, that's hitting everybody's radar screen is really by the books that have been published. And like really in the, about the past year, you've got books like Matt Chandler wrote a book, The Explicit Gospel. Jared C. Wilson wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. J.D. Greer wrote a book called Gospel, plain and simple, creative title, Gospel. Greg Gilbert, What is the Gospel? D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, The Gospel is Center. And really, that's just five books really within the past year, year and a half. Um, you could do more. I just picked those because they have gospel in the title. In some sort of fashion, there's there's other books that are there. And what you you want to wonder is, have the publishers just producing the same book written by other people with different titles? And the reality is, is, 
is yes and no. Yes, in the fact that they're all about the gospel, but the reality is no, they're not all the same book. It's not as though you pick it up and that's the only thing you read is, okay, here's what the gospel is. Because the gospel is uh, not like a flat piece of paper, two-dimensional, but it's three-dimensional like a diamond. And so you look at it and it's so multifaceted and so deep and so rich that numerous books can be written and it not all be the exact same book. And the thing that has really come about in this gospel resurgence, if you will, and kind of where we're going this morning, is for a while, the church, especially the church in America, had done something. and They had kind of relegated the gospel to a set of facts or a short, brief message that you needed to tell people who don't know Jesus. And that's all the gospel was. It's just a short, brief message that you told people who didn't know Jesus. And then once they heard it, they then graduated from that and came into Christianity and started doing other stuff. Kind of leaving the gospel behind or having it in their back pocket, ready to share with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. So then they too can come into the circle and put the gospel back here and wait for another lost person to share it. And though none of us, I don't think, would say that, unfortunately, in the church, a lot of people really kind of began thinking that way. The gospel is the message for lost people. It's not the message for the church. And really, over the past few years, God, by the power of his spirit, has been opening our eyes and helping us to understand that the gospel is not simply a message for our justification. But the gospel is a message for all of our salvation, our justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, let me let me not just say I'm going to throw out some big words and hope that you think I'm impressive because I'm one, I'm not impressive. And two, somebody taught me those words. I didn't come up with them on my own. But before we go any further, let me explain what I mean by those terms. I don't want to take it for granted that um, that by throwing out something like justification, everybody knows what I mean, though we we talk about it regularly. It's good for us to. To really get a, a good base level. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this and then we're going to launch into the scriptures. I think you'll see where we're going. Justification, um, and I wrote this definition down God declaring us righteous in his sight solely because of the work of Christ. So us being righteous in the sight of God, not of our own merit, not of our own doing, but solely because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now, unfortunately, for some people, they wanted, they wanted to find justification as God declaring me not guilty. You may have heard people talk about justification be a legal term. But unfortunately, that's a truncated definition. Because it is not as though God has just declared us morally neutral. Not guilty is just neutral. Okay, you, you've not done anything bad. Our justification in the gospel is God has looked upon us as if we had not just not disobeyed, but as if we had obeyed perfectly in every instance, in every way, just as Christ did. So our justification is not just that God has given us a clean slate. It is that he has bestowed upon us the righteousness of Christ. Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus See that, we know that, but we also know our hearts better than anybody else does. And we understand that though I have been declared that and though God looks at me that way, I am not that way. There are still things in my heart, still things in my life that are not perfectly obedient, that are still rebellious, that still go against God. And so the author A.W. Pink wrote in the early uh, the turn of the century, a perfect legal standing only met half the need of God, God's elect. In addition, their state must be made to accord with their standing. And so though we stand as if we have perfectly obeyed God's law in every way, our state is such that we do not do that. We don't live it perfectly. Christians are not perfect people. That comes as a surprise to some of you, but we're broken, messed up. And anybody on the outside world who who looks at Christians and think, okay, these people think they're perfect. I don't think they understand Christians because we know we're not perfect. If anything, Christians are more aware of their imperfections because we see them in the light of Christ on the cross. 
And we understand that we don't match up to what God has declared us. But God in his infinite mercy, as part of our salvation, doesn't just bring us to himself. He then makes us in practice what he's already declared that we are. And so he has said, I declare you are righteous in Christ. And now the rest of our lives has spent him working on us by the power of the spirit to make us what he has already said that we are. Now, some of us wish that process would go just a little bit faster. But God slowly works in us to do that. That is what I mean when I say justification and when I talk about sanctification. Now, here's the thing. For many people, they have no problem understanding the gospel as it applies to justification. After all, Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we can come to God. We see that. We trust that. We are justified. We are brought into his presence. When it gets dicey is when we start talking about our sanctification. Because... How does the gospel that brings us to God keep us with God and make us what God has declared that we should be? And the reality is that's what Scripture teaches. We're going to look at a passage this morning, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, where Paul brings this to light. We could look in several other places. We're going to draw out other places in Scripture where we see this as well. But here's my hope. My hope this morning is that we will not only see this biblically, we'll see some actual examples of what this looks like in life and it will set us all on a trajectory of living the life that God has called us to be because the most frustrating thing for a Christian can be in the middle of this sanctification when we try to do it on our own because the more we try to do it on our own the less we're able to do it and so we're left wondering why is it that I can't get over this My hope this morning is that we'll see the gospel provides not only the why, but the how and gives us the strength to get through that. So let's look at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As I read this passage, there's a couple of questions that I feel like we've got to get to because we're, we're right here. We're looking at this. I think there's a couple of questions that, that should come to our mind that come out as we're looking at this. And the question, the first question I've got is, Paul writes, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. I want to know, how did we receive Christ Jesus? Because if we're going to walk in it, we've got to figure out how we received him because that's the way we're going to walk. So we're going to get there in a second. So the question is, how did we receive Christ Jesus, the Lord? Well, we've got to start even a little bit before that with a therefore. Because you've got to understand, Paul, as he's writing this, this, this letter to the church in Colossae, he's not writing chapter and verse markings in it. He's writing a letter. I mean, just think about how odd that would be if somebody wrote you a letter or an email or a text message and they put chapter and verse markings in it. I mean, are you kidding me? So he's not writing this. He's writing this as his train of thought. And so Paul, in the book of Colossians, he is... He is thanking God for the gospel that brings us the hope of heaven, who is Christ. And he talks about how the gospel has been sounding forth and it's bearing fruit in the lives of people and in people all around them, that people are coming to Christ. And it's amazing. He talks about how the whole point of all of this is Jesus. The whole thing is pointing us to Jesus. He is preeminent in everything. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. The one who is over all, in all, through all. Everything is pointing to him. And this gospel is here. And then he gets to this amazing thing. And he says, and the mystery hidden for ages was not just that God was going to save the Jewish people, but that he was going to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That around his throne would be all kinds of people worshiping him forever. It was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And so Paul has said, this is the mystery that was hidden and now has been revealed for us. And you have been brought into this as well. And so now his desire then is for the people in the church at Colossae and for us today, even too, to look at this and stand in wonder that God would do all of this through us. And he says, therefore, in light of this, keep this in mind as you receive the Lord, so walk in him. Now, this idea of receiving, this really points to that, that, that concept of justification that I was talking about. And for those of us in the room that are followers of Jesus, we all have different stories. 
I love hearing people's stories of how they came to know Christ, how they came to place their faith in him, where they were, who shared with them. Was it a parent? Was it a friend? Were they reading the scripture? Were they listening to a sermon? Were they on an airplane? Were they walking in the woods? Were they sitting in church? Were they at home? I mean, there's so many different beautiful stories of how people came to faith in Christ. But there's some very similar things with everybody's story. The first thing is we all had to come to a realization of our sin. You don't need a savior if nothing's wrong. And unfortunately, sometimes we want to get we want to get to people and start telling them about the savior before they realize they need a savior. You see, we can all look at around the world and understand it's broken. It doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. There's death. There's pain. Things mess up. We ask questions. We don't know why. But even more importantly than that. I've yet to meet even the most arrogant person who will not agree to the statement, nobody's perfect. Which betrays two things. One, we think there's a standard for perfection and we realize that we don't meet it. And so when we start digging and we start probing and we start understanding, we realize that we don't meet a good and perfect standard and that we're there. Now, some people will say, well, that's just the way it is. That's human nature. It's no big deal. But as the gospel brings that to light, what it does is it shows us that, yes, we're not perfect. But it's more than just, hey, you've messed up. Because that imperfection and that is ultimately a rebellion. It's not just, hey, I don't do things right. As I do things the wrong way, the way that God has decreed that it should be done. And as God created everything, he is right and good and should Put down how things should work, what things should do. It's all his. We're his anyway. And what we find now is it's not just that we've done things wrong, but we are in rebellion against God. But here's the good thing about the gospel. And don't get this. This is why it's good news. Unfortunately, when you have to talk about sin, people sometimes don't understand why it's good news. I mean, like sin is not good news. You're right. Sin is not good news. But the answer is good news. The gospel never reveals your sin to leave you wallowing in it, feeling guilty and defeated. The gospel reveals your sin to point you to the one who has taken care of your sin. So now what we find is that the one thing we all have in common is that we have seen our sin and we understand we're in rebellion against the good and holy and loving and wonderful God. And yet we've turned on him. And what he has done is in spite of our rebellion, in spite of it, he came and took the consequences for that sin upon himself so that we might be reconciled to him. And so in the gospel, the good news is not that we have sinned. But that in spite of our sin, God loves us anyway and has provided a way for us to be brought back to him. You see, this is why I think a lot of people have a connection of the gospel with our justification. Because this is where we all are. We have to come to the point we realize our sin. We see the beauty of Christ. We understand that sin leads us away from God. And no matter what we do on our own, we can never get back to him. He's provided the way. And then what we must do is repent and believe. Now, put those two together. It's really important. Um, Repentance is a word that oftentimes we talk talk about it um, being to turn in the opposite direction. Uh, Author Tim Chester writes it this way. Let's see if I can find my note here for a second. How do we repent? We repent through faith. Turning to God in faith and from sin in repentance are the same movement. He writes, stand facing the window. Then turn and face the opposite wall. The act of turning from the window and turning from to the wall is one movement. You can't turn towards the wall without turning away from the window. And you can't turn to God in faith without turning away from sin and repentance. So what we find is not just the gospel reveals our sin and then reveals the Savior. There's a call to action. Stop following sin and turn to God. And so what? imagine if I'm facing the screen... In order to turn to face you, I have to turn away from the screen to face you. I can't do both at the same time. And so the concept is there is that when the gospel reveals our sin, reveals the beauty of the Savior, then the call is to turn from your sin by trusting Christ and him alone to make you reconciled and bring you to God. That's the gospel. And for most of us, almost all of us, I would say, who are followers of Christ, we get that for this justification, this entrance into the kingdom. And oftentimes we feel like, okay, I've got that. I'm here. Now we're good. But remember our passage, because what did Paul say? 
As you received Christ, so walk in him. So the question is, how does this gospel then empower my walking? Now, the, the term walk in the New Testament is not simply used to, you know, put your one foot in front of the other down a path or something like that. It can be used that way. But it's also a way of talking about a characteristic of your life. So, for instance, it could be said in the New Testament that someone is walking in sin. And what that means is their life is characterized by sin. They're thinking, they're acting, they're doing, their motivations, all of that is characterized by sin. So their way of life is sinful. They're walking in sin. But it is also said that we, are, we can be walking in Christ or walk in the light or be in the light as he is in the light. And so what it is is there's a characterization of our life that is centered around Christ. And so everything, the way we think, the way we act, what we do, where we go, how we live is focused on this being in Christ. Now, that helps us then understand what Paul is saying here when he says, as we received him, so walk in him. Now, it's important that we realize the parallel that's in verse seven, because Paul says, as you receive Christ, so walk in him. Then he writes rooted and built up in him. This is kind of a Hebrew way of doing it, especially like if you read the book of Psalms. Uh, if it's in poetic in nature, there'll be two lines in each verse of the psalm. And a lot of times they it's like they repeat each other, but they're just kind of tweaked a little bit, set a little differently to reinforce the point. Here's what Paul's saying. As you received him, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. There's a parallel that's going on here. And so you've got this beginning and this carrying out. And what we find is this is talking about sanctification because it's very similar to what Paul writes in Galatians 3. In the book of Galatians... The people in the church were struggling with legalism. And what I mean by that is they thought they could bring about perfection in their life by keeping a certain set of rules, a list, a checklist. If I had all this, if I can do all of these things, I will be good. And why this is important to us is this is written to people who are in Christ. So they're not trying to earn their way to heaven. They're trying to earn their sanctification. But notice what Paul says in Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or, hearing, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, that goes right along with what Paul is saying here in this parallel. As you received Christ... So walk in him. You are rooted and being built up in him. You don't start by the spirit, but then do it by your flesh. It's all right there. They received the spirit by the gospel. They are now being perfected by the gospel. Paul says actually the same thing in Colossians 1, um, 23 and uh Let's see, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And I could take a little while and show you how Paul is continually in the book of Colossians. He keeps going to this very theme, the idea of starting in the gospel, but then also finishing in the gospel. So these parallels are here. This is very Pauline theology. It's all right here together that we start in the gospel, but then that we finish in the gospel as well. So let's go back to what we said. Remember, when we talk about how did we receive him. We talk about understanding sin, seeing Christ, repenting and believing. And I'm indebted here a little bit to a man by the name of Jonathan Dodson. He wrote a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. Uh, it's new. Several people here in the church already have it. It's going to be one that uh, we're going to use uh, and some things we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but it's very impactful because what Dodson does is he helps to, us to understand how some certain things in Scripture work in our sanctification. And he refers to these as warnings and promises. Now, the warnings are those things which help elevate and help us to see our sin. The promises are the things that we trust. So, for instance, he then says, uh, for instance, take Rome, uh, Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, 
My mistake oftentimes when reading something like that is to think that that is pointing to people who are outside of Christ. But the reality is those words are written to the believers in the church at Colossae. So what is happening now is the Holy Spirit through Paul is elevating these things to be seen as utterly sinful and need to be done away with. You know, we, we have a tendency to look and see all that out here. He is actually taking the spotlight and turning it inward. To say, put to death what is in you that is earthly. Sexual impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Covet, I hate that word. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And notice what verse says. Verse 6 says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You see, what happens is now when we read these things as somebody who has been justified by the gospel and we're now seeking to be sanctified by the gospel, the same thing happens. Sin is brought to life by the scriptures. And what we find now is as we're seeking to walk after Christ, there is still that sinfulness in there. And we need the scriptures to bring it to the surface. Not to bring shame upon us or guilt or wallowing in the sense of, oh, we're hopeless. Oh, it's no good. No, you can't deal with sin unless you know it's there. And it is so deceitful and it is so subtle that we don't know that it's there half the time. And we walk in it, we don't even realize it. But the scriptures, by the grace of God, pull it forth and put it in front of our eyes. Just as in our justification, when we understand it and understand we need a savior. And what we find is that these sin and these temptations are there. But it's a little bit different. Because now, as we're seeking to follow Christ and we see these things, these temptations are so subtle. And the lies that they tell us become so believable because they vaguely and barely just a tidbit deliver just a little bit. So then the reason why we're told that we have to put away sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire is because the temptation for those things actually like a morbid drug dealer give us just a little bit. Just a little bit. They satisfy just a touch. I mean, don't get me wrong. See, some preachers will stand up and say, temptation can't deliver anything. No, it can deliver something or else we wouldn't even be tempted by it. But here's the thing. It promises complete fulfillment. It promises that if you turn and look at this, you'll be, you'll be satisfied. And things will be great. It'll be wonderful. And you turn for that fleeting moment and things are kind of okay. And then all of a sudden the shame and the guilt and everything is piled in and it goes away. And you realize you were left unsatisfied and you've got to have more. And the temptation comes and it's there and it's constantly there. Or you're told if you get your body looking just this way and things are just right, people will love you. They will, they will cherish you. You will be so wonderful. And their praise will just keep you motivated and loved and things will be good and then it takes one comment to shatter every single bit of it. You see, sin tells you promises that it cannot keep. Ever. What did Jesus say about Satan? He is the father of lies. The very lie in the very beginning in the, in the garden was that God is keeping something back from you and if you go this way, you'll get everything you want. But what happened? Everything you ever needed got shattered and taken away from you. Sin makes promises. And when we are tempted, what we are doing is we're looking at those promises and believing them. We believe that what it says it will deliver, it, it'll do it. We believe that. Even if in our mind we know that it won't, we are at that point believing it. And what the scripture does is through these warnings is put a spotlight on it and helps us to understand and see it for what it really is. It helps us to understand this is wretched, this is dirty, this is sinful, and this is going to do nothing but bring shame, guilt, and separate you from God. And understand, it's not like this is just some little thing. The wrath of God is coming against these things. Do you really want to be looking at it and feeling it? And so it comes up there. And so we're, uh, we're, our sin is right there in front of us. So now what do we do? Well, remember, as you received Christ. So I saw my sin. But then what did I do? I saw the Savior. And I saw that he who died for me, he makes promises. But here's the difference. 
Christ fulfills his promises in ways we can't even imagine. Everything he promises, he brings about in ways that are beyond compare. We can't even understand. So when sin promises, it'll bring us fulfillment or purpose or acceptance. It never can. But in Christ, we have fulfillment. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have acceptance. And it's not people accepting us. It is the God of the universe, not just saying you can come stand beside me, but embracing us and adopting us into his family and lavishing love and grace on us for eternity. Ephesians tells us that for eternity, we will understand and experience the riches of the grace of Christ lavished upon us. And every single promise he makes, he will fulfill. And we know that because of the cross. God promised Christ, promised redemption, promised salvation, and he made sure that it happened by sending Christ on the cross. And so now, as I'm walking through life and I'm seeking to follow Jesus, the gospel brings me back to understand sin is bad. Christ is wonderful. He will do what sin promises but can't do. He promises and can do it. So what do I do? I repent and believe. I turn from this. I, I, I turn away from trusting these empty, hollow shells that are full of deceit and turn to the one who can give me the very thing that my heart longs for in the right way. So I repent and believe. So as I received Christ, I walk in him, rooted and built up. But here's the thing. And let's just let's just go ahead and lay it out there. I mean, this is this is good theory. You know, this is real good, like, uh, you know, out here, this cool idea. But what does this look like in, like, real life? I mean, what does this look like on Tuesday morning, you know? What does this look like on Thursday afternoon? Not when we're sitting here in church, you know, we're all together. But what does this look like lived out in in, in life? And so what I wanted to do was um, not ignore that question, but to try to tackle it head on. And uh, so, uh, you know, most of the time when preachers deal with sin and stuff, they go straight to lust because, you know, that's really the really big one. None of y'all struggle with murder so much, I don't think. I mean, if you do, talk to me afterwards. I'll help you out with that a little bit. But, you know, pe- preachers like want to zero in on lust because, like, it's the big one. I'm not going to do that this morning just because of that fact. So I'm going to throw that out the window. We'll deal with that one another time. Uh, but what I want to deal with is what uh, Jerry Bridges in his book called Respectable Sins. I want to deal with a couple of things that we just let slide. They're really no big deal, you know. Uh, just, you know, we know they're sinful, but you know, we we don't want to call them people out on those, you know. Um, so I uh, could have done several, but what I want to do is I want to deal with with greed, and I want to deal with anger. Okay, so don't get mad at me. This was all done before you came in. So, um, but so for instance, let's let's do let's look at greed. Um, you know, we live in a culture that says get what you can, when you can, why you can, all that you can. And if you give away any, just make sure you're going to get more in return. I mean, that's what it is, whether it's money, cars, whatever. I work with college students on a, on a regular basis. And so many people go to college because they've got to get a degree so they can get a good job. That's what it's all about. I'm going to go to college for the reason that I can get a good job. And it's got to be good. And when I get that job, I'm already looking for the next job. I'm looking how I can climb the ladder to get an even better job. Why? Because we got to get the stuff. We got to have the clothes, got to have the car, we got to have the family, we got to have all these things. See, because when I start talking about greed, people always think about rich people. You know, (laughs) rich people ain't the only ones that are greedy. Yeah, we're all greedy. We all want stuff. And so we don't think about that very often, though. We think if we don't have a lot of money, we really can't be greedy, but it's there. It can lurk inside of us. And you may not, you may not wrestle with that. Listen to what I say and still, because this will help you. This is, these are the principles. This is kind of this thing put into motion. You may not wrestle with that, but what you may find is that you're, you're reading your Bible and you're, you read 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice, it is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Please never say that the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay? 
I've heard people say that before. I was like, man, you're so misquoting that. No, the root of evil is sin. Anyway, the root love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here you go. You're reading this. And what does the Bible say about greed? Well, desire to be desire. To, this goes and just as a desire to be rich will lead you into temptation. Which is enough right there to just say this is not good. The Bible tells us God never tempts us. So if we're going to be tempted in something, we already know that it's going to be a desire to do something sinful. But notice what it says. Temptation, a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that will plunge into ruin and destruction. And then a wandering away from the faith. Notice how strong this can be. So much so that people will value money over Christ. Now, let me just be clear here, okay? I like having a job. I like being able to eat. And I like being able to feed and clothe all my kids, okay? So don't hear me saying that it's wrong for you to want to have a job. What I am saying is if the point of your life is to try to figure out how much money and stuff you can get. So much so that you've so arranged your life around, you can't go a minute without checking your bank account or figuring out how your stocks are doing. I would ask you to let this warning come into your life, shine a little light and ask yourself, is this the point of my life? Because if it is, the Bible tells me this is going to lead me into temptation and into a snare. And some people have actually wandered away from Jesus because it became more important to them than he did. So hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. And what we find as you start looking about this, we, we understand this is, this is subtle. And in our culture, this is, this is celebrated. We, we look at people who have lots of money. We want to be like them. We go to seminars to hear how they got all their money so we can figure out how we can be that way. And it's subtle and it creeps in on us. And so what do we do? When the scripture brings us to light, you're like, oh my goodness, I've been, I've been doing this. I've been doing this. So you've got two choices. One, you can start beating it down on your own. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to worry about it. And how does that work out for you? Really not that good. Okay. Some of us may be able to beat down some of that a little bit. But while that's happening, some other things like a beast consume us. But what we find is that doesn't really work because what did Paul say? How did you receive the spirit? By faith. Are you now going to continue by the flesh? So are you going to be able to beat this thing down that you hate and don't want to have? Are you going to be able to beat it down just by self-will? No, you're not. So what do we do? Well, we start looking for promises. We start looking for what God is going to have, what God says about this. You know, in one that, that's easy to go to, Psalm 16 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we start understanding that money says, you're going to be, your source of joy is going to be found in having stuff. Money, boat, bank account, clothes, whatever. This stuff is going to bring you great joy. And the Bible says, no, joy is found in the Lord. The pleasure that this stuff brings, no, that doesn't bring pleasure. It just brings a longing for more because when it's gone, you got to find something to replace it. You know, at, what is it? Who was I think it was uh, some rich Carnegie or somebody, a rich person. Is how much is enough? And they said just a little bit more. There's always more that has to be had. But with God, there's joy and pleasures forevermore. Then you look at uh, Proverbs sixteen sixteen. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, this is one of those promises, one of those truths of Scripture that when you're really battling with sin... Sin sneers at. Because think about it. And the world would sneer at this one. Seriously? So like knowing about God is better than having money. Seriously. I mean, come on. Like, like knowing how the world works, knowing God's ways, that's better than money. Like wh- what's that going to do for your 401k? Knowing about God. You know, then you can Jesus you can be like, well, 401k ain't going to matter. When Jesus comes back, you know, that's not what we're saying here. But what you find is that God is here letting us know this riches. You don't trust in that. It's taken away. What if you lose that job? What if the government goes under? 
FDIC is not going to do you any good then. Unless you've got gold stockpiled in your yard. And then how are you going to exchange that? I mean, come on. Let's get, let's get real about this. There's no security in money. Government goes under. Dollars are worth nothing. You're broke and you got nothing. Okay? Well, that's never going to happen. All right? Yeah. All right. Let's just wait and see. But what I'm telling you is... Wait, oh, that, all right, let me just clarify. I'm not like a, I don't think the government's about to go under. I realized as soon as I said that, it was like, you know, like doomsday prophet standing up here. We're about to go under. That's not what I meant all the way ever. I don't even know. Scratch that. Okay. Just ignore what I just said there. Okay. My point is trying to get across is money is not a good security. It goes away. Value, it, it, one day when you die, what does the book of Ecclesiastes say? You work so hard for money, and then when you die, it's given to somebody who didn't even work for it, and then they waste it, and it goes away. And it does you no good when you're standing in front of God. See, the reality is, you don't have to have money for security if you've got Christ. It's a liar. It's a liar. It does not secure you. How much money in the world is going to keep you from getting cancer? How much money in the world is going to keep everybody you love from one day dying? It doesn't. There's no security in that. But there is security in knowing the one who holds the world in his hand. And so when money and greed starts lying to you, you say, no. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is better for me to love God and seek his ways than to seek money. And with that in mind, you start putting things in your life to help keep you from doing that, pursuing that promise and knowing this promise is true. So when that temptation comes, I'm going to walk towards it and trust it and believe it. What about anger? We'll go through this one a little bit more quickly so you don't get mad at me. Uh, anger. Uh, James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, and I'm targeting specifically, I mean, there's like, you could spend weeks talking about anger. There's so many ways that our anger can be, you know, like, focused or vented on or whatever. But, you know, the, the worst kind is the kind that we think is good because it was like we're mad at somebody because they've done some kind of injustice to us. You know, something horrible like cutting us off in traffic or stepping in front of us in a line or something like that. You know, this massive injustice. I see that head back there. Yes, I know. They, these wretched people that need to understand how horrible they are, scum of the earth, that they would do that to us. Now, I'm over-exaggerating a little bit here, but you know what I'm saying. So many times we want to get angry at people, and we want to vent, and it's, it's right, and it's good, because our sense of justice has been impugned. What about Romans 12? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never... Avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For, here's your promise, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Because you know what? When somebody does something to you, it's wrong. It's not right. There's a sense of an injustice has occurred, no matter how minor or even how big it is. But here's the reality. If that person is a believer and they have done something sinful, the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ for that offense and every single one of yours. The wrath of God was poured completely on Christ for that event, that occurrence, and every one of yours. And more frightening, if not... That person will spend an eternity separated from God, enduring his wrath in hell. Which one of those is not enough to pay for them cutting you off in line? You see, these promises help us to see where we start saying, God, that's not enough. And whoa, 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 wait a minute, that is enough. The wrath of God against sin is either going to be paid by Christ on the cross or eternity in hell. Either one of those is more than sufficient for the small thing that was done for me. And so now, when I have anger welling up inside of me, whether it's something small or something big, and I want to lash out at that person, I realize my anger doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. But God is the one who extracts vengeance because He is the good and right and faithful judge. 
And so I take that and I apply it. Now, here's the thing. Some of you may struggle with greed. Some of you may struggle with anger. Some of you may struggle with lust. Blah, blah, blah. We could, we could list a whole bunch of them off. I have not given you exactly how to handle every single one of these. And I've not told you how to make it go away overnight. Because one, it won't go away overnight. But here's the case. We were never meant to do this alone. Never meant to do this alone. You realize that almost every book in the New Testament is written to a church or to somebody who is over a church as a means for them to communicate to the church. Christ intended us to walk through this together. And in America, we have a very individualistic mind about things. I am saved. It's me and God. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to do these things. But this struggle with sin is between me and God, whether it's because we feel like everybody else has it together and we don't, or we feel like we've got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which I hope you've already seen is not the way God wants us to deal with it, or whether we just don't have a right understanding of what it means to walk through this life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we want to do is, as a church, say, we understand God has not intended us to do this together. Every person in this room who is a follower of Christ is undergoing sanctification even now. And there are things in all of our lives that we need the gospel desperately to heal and to make us right with Christ. And so what I want to do is challenge you. Is, are, there, are there people in your life one, two others that you meet with regularly that help keep you focused on the gospel, that help keep you thinking about how the gospel is going to push you towards Jesus. And in the coming months, you're going to find that we as a church have recognized this and we're, we're wanting to move forward. We're wanting this to be, to be a part of, of, of what we do through our community groups. Not just meeting together in small groups and, and studying and talking about what God's doing, but in even smaller groups in that, helping each other fight the good fight of the faith and to walk in the way that we received Christ. So if you're part of a community group, and if you're not, I highly encourage you to be. If you're part of a community group, be looking. This, this thing is going to be coming. And this is it's not perfect. It's not the only way to do it. But instead of just saying, hey, go and do this, you know, peace be upon you. Uh, we're gonna, we want to we kind of help, help guide you in this. We want to help shepherd you in this so that we all together might pursue Jesus. This is not a, hey, come up here. I got this all figured out. Let me show you how to do this because I'm good. This is more of us just walking beside each other and saying, man, I am so broken and I need you to help me because that's the way that God has designed it. The church is a means of God's grace. And we together take the gospel and apply it to our lives. And we rejoice with each other and we cry with each other and we work through things with each other, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. One final thing before we close out. Notice at the very end of verse 7, Paul says, abounding in thanksgiving. One of the things I noticed as I was uh, reading through Colossians was uh, Paul would keep bringing up this idea of the gospel and being our sanctification, not in those exact terms, but it was there, said in multiple ways at different times. But almost always appended to it was this idea of thanksgiving. And at first, when I was just studying Colossians 2.7, I just kind of felt like it was randomly put in there. I mean, I know better. There's no random words in Scripture. They're not just haphazardly thrown in. It's, it's there, so don't hear me saying that. But I couldn't figure out what the connection was. And then I started seeing the connection all the way through the book of how these things were connected. And then it's like God just helped me to understand. When we struggle through sanctification, it is difficult. And he reminded me of Philippians 2.13. It is he who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 2.12 says that we're to work out our own salvation. We walk forward in this knowing that we can't do this on our own. But that it's God who works in us both to want to do it and have the ability to do it. How does that lead to thanksgiving? Well, if you've ever struggled with sin in your life and hated it and seen God grant you the grace to overcome it, 
is one of the most amazing things that ever happens in your life. And you're left not thinking about how great you are, but how amazing it is that the cross has once again carved this sin out of your life and made you more like Jesus so that you abound in thanksgiving to God that he would so work in your life. We're about to turn now to a time of response. And for some of you, maybe this is a time where you just kind of need to sit and kind of soak this in. I know it's probably been like trying to drink from a fire hydrant this morning. And I hope that some of those, the truths have really just kind of got there. And this is something we're not going to, this is not going to be passing. This is not something you're going to talk about one time. We're never going to bring it up again. Will you hear more more about this in the future? But maybe right now is your time of response is first just to kind of sit. Maybe there's something you know right now in your life. The scripture has, has brought it to light. The warnings are there. And you need to spend some time just confessing that and praying that God would give you a promise to cling to, to trust in. Maybe you've seen God do something amazing in your life. And your time of worship right now is, is overflowing in thanksgiving for what God has already been doing in your life. And praying he would do that more and more. Maybe there's somebody on your heart and you're like, you know, I don't have somebody with me right now who's helping me walk this, this walk together. But, but if you're a guy, there's another guy. If you're a girl, there's another girl. And you're thinking, this person, I think we could walk through this road together and really encourage each other. Maybe you need to spend some time praying for them. You need to spend some time getting ready to talk to them. Or maybe really for the first time this morning, you've understood the gospel. And you're not needing to walk in him just yet. You're needing to receive him. The good news is you can't do it on your own. And yes, you are just as broken as the rest of us. But God loves you in spite of all of that. So much so that he gave his son for you. So that you could be adopted into his family. Lavished his love upon for all eternity. So I challenge you, whoever you came with this morning, if this morning for the first time you understand you need Christ and you see your, your, your recognition of that, whoever you came with or if you came by yourself and you want to come find me or somebody else, just say, hey, I, I need to know more about Jesus. I need to know more about, about knowing him and loving him and being part of this, this family. And for some of you, it's walking forward and saying, you know what, I need to, I need to walk in Christ. We're going we're gonna to close in a time of response. I want to pray for us, and Ben's going to lead us um, as we sing. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the joy of being found in the gospel. And God, you are so good to us, and you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And may we never shirk responsibility and sit back lazily, but may we fight and, and be as violent about killing sin as the word calls us to be. And Lord, may we not rely on our own strength, but really, truly learn what it means to live in the gospel. And I pray that we'd be a church of people who are broken, um, who uh, are messed up, but are striving to be what you've called us to be in the power of your spirit. So Lord, would you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? May we abound in thanksgiving for it all. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.